Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to One Billion Raving Fans, a podcast from the people at Waitwell. I'm your host, Shannon Bannermulen. I'm fascinated by the art and science of service excellence. Why do some brands have customers who are so loyal that they act like raving fans? Our guests share their perspectives on customer experience and offer tips you can use to create a culture of fandom around your business. Welcome. I'm here with Russ Dantu today, owner of Synergy Solutions and author of the book At Your Service. He's an expert on the subject of customer service and an award-winning speaker. Welcome, Russ. Thanks very much for having me, Shannon. Excited to be here. Let's start with you. What got you interested in the topic of customer service? You know, it was years ago. I was actually in junior high school. I was working in the trade show industry. So we were setting up all the trade shows, the booths, the carpets, the tables, the electrical, those sort of things. And I actually had a 25-year career in there. And it got to the point where I was working the service desk a lot Once I got out of high school and that, I I seemed to connect well with people. So they said, let's put Russ on there when we didn't have one of our other regulars there. And it seemed to be constant complaints about the same things coming in about what we were doing. And so I started looking at it a little closer and it's like, well, what can we do to make the customer experience a little bit better for people that are renting booths at trade shows and have to come to us to rent equipment, the whole process. So I started working on making it more friendly for them. And from there, I moved up. I actually jumped ship after 18 years, the company I was with. And when I moved to the new company, it was like, what can I do to make our company better than all of the other trade show companies? in there with our customer service. So I started working on a lot of things and a lot of the hotels and venues really liked simple things like the the company I was working for, we'd roll up all the plastic on the tables at the end and just throw it on the floor in piles here and there and take our garbage bags out and leave it there. One of the things I did was say, let's take all the garbage with us. It's one less thing the hotel has to do. It doesn't take a lot of extra time. And then the other thing was we'd leave a little bit of free equipment there for them to use so they didn't have to spend 20 or $30 here and there to rent stuff off of us. The other thing we did, we had all of our staff in uniforms. And when I say that, I mean from head to toe. We all had to have steel toe boots. This was way before they were mandatory. Everybody had to wear black pants and they couldn't be sweatpants. And a lot of the other competitors were sweatpants and whatever they wanted to wear and old ball caps and, you know, they weren't clean shaven. So we really changed the way we did that. And what I did with our staff was once a week, we would have sort of like your toolbox meetings when people are going after their core certification. I would add on to that and we would do a customer service moment. So every week, 
we would do something specific to our industry, something that a problem that had come up or that I wanted them to work on. And I would just keep driving home customer service, customer service. And it became the culture of our company. And I think that's what made us so successful. I went to a company, they were stagnant at $400,000 gross a year, and they were getting ready to close the doors. And in four years, we add them up to 1.3 million. So it was a huge turnaround. And then they sold the company back to the company I originally worked for. So I knew writing was going to be on the wall pretty quick that I wouldn't be in that industry much longer. But that's where I got my start with it. And from there, people started saying, hey, can you teach us how to do that? So I built my speaking business around it. I love so much of what you just said. One thing that stuck out for me is process. I always say process is everything. And it's so important when it comes to customer service. You know, people focus on these sort of exceptional moments and the connection with the person. That's really important. Connection's really important. But a lot of times it just comes down to consistently doing what needs to be done to make the customer happy, not just sometimes or one time, but consistently every time. When you talk about the taking out the garbage, I mean, that just seems like such a basic thing. But I'm just wondering what made you realize that that was something that would sort of elevate your trade show company and help it to become sort of a preferred vendor with hotels? Did somebody tell you about it or was it just something that you observed? It was a constant complaint coming up from the hotels and especially the company I was working for, we used to staple our skirts on. So when you'd pull the staples off to fold them up at the end, you'd pull the staples out. Not all the staples made it into the paper tops or vinyl tops that you rolled up. So it would be all over their carpets. So the first thing we did, we actually went to a Velcro system so that there was no more staples. But if the staples that were getting into the flooring and everything, it was wrecking their vacuum machines. So it was a huge issue for them. It was hard for them to vacuum, a lot of extra work for them to clear up all the garbage and fill their bin with it. So it, it just it seemed to make sense. So it was coming from listening to customers primarily. You know, one thing that I've noticed when you start looking at customer service is you start seeing how organizations talk about their customer service. So one thing that I've noticed is that pretty much every organization says, we have the best customer service. Like it's on every website you go to. And yet anecdotal evidence would suggest exactly the opposite. So for you, what are the hallmarks of really great service? What does an organization have to do in your mind to actually be able to say that they offer great customer service? Well, I think they have to be the leader of the pack all the time. So when people think of a, a specific industry, that name automatically comes to mind. So it's what what are they doing better than everybody else? And and I think you said it well when you talked about processes there. And there, there's four Ps for anybody making a, a purchase, right? Do they have the right product first off? Is it at the right price? Those are two things we can't always control because competition is competition and most people are going to have a similar product at a similar price to us. Sometimes it's a lot cheaper, but then you're getting what you paid for. But the other two Ps that are so important, and I think this is what sets the elite customer service people apart, is the people you hire and train and the processes that you put in place. And I always say you've got to jump over over the other side of the counter and be the customer in your business. And too often, the people on your side of the counter, they're so wrapped up in their day-to-day, this is the way we do things, this is the way it is. They don't think about how that person is feeling dealing with them. But if they actually put their feet in their shoes and said, okay, I'm a customer for a day, would I appreciate this? Does this seem like the easiest way to do things? 
And I think when we're setting up processes, a lot of businesses make the processes easier for their employees and they're talking about the customers. And I know you've done really well with that, right? You've nailed it with what do people hate doing? They hate waiting in lines, right? So how can you make that whole experience so much more friendly and exciting for them? And and that's what every business needs to do is is simplify processes, make it customer friendly, and you'll almost naturally rise to the top. So product, price, people, and process. That was my 10th question. (laughs) So that's awesome that we touched on that already. And another recurring theme from your book that I picked up on, and, and you approach it, you, you know, you use different acronyms and different expressions for it. But to me, the theme that you're talking about really is integrity. So in the context of service, what does integrity mean and how can organizations ensure that this value is really embedded in the service culture, that it's being demonstrated to customers right from, you know, the president and CEO down to, you know, the person who's picking up the phone? Hmm, great question. And you know, I think it does, it flows from the top, right? So whoever your CEO or president is, or even just your team leaders with their taking care of the employees, uh, whatever the business is, they absolutely have to lead by example. They have to believe not only in their product, but in, you know, every, every business should be a people company, right? It's all about keeping people happy, making them happy, making them repeat customers, raving fans definitely flows from the top down. So there's got to be extensive training done and consistently done, not just here's the half hour on customer service, doing those, you know, those weekly meetings or or bringing in people that can help you with that, or even just having different people in your company run some customer service sessions so that you hit on every area that has been a concern before and just to really elevate your game. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So do you think that service is something that everybody is capable of doing? Or do you think that inherently some people are sort of built for a customer-facing role and some people aren't? Is it something that can be coached for anybody? I think we can all get better at it. I think some people are are more natural. And when I say more natural, if you if you look at the different personality styles, so you know, you get people that are relators and, and they're all about wanting to fit into the crowd, be a part of the herd, be a part of the solution. So those are wonderful customer service people. More so the extroverts, I would say, are are better because they can connect with people a little easier. That doesn't mean introverts can't connect, but sometimes introverts can come across the wrong way. So if you put, if we use the personality like a, a typical accountant or an engineer, they're numbers people. So if a customer comes up to your desk and they're complaining about something, the analyst in them would be processing it in their head and thinking about an answer and going this and this and this, but they'll be just staring at them blankly. So the customer's probably going to get frustrated because they're going, is this person even listening to me? Whereas if you've got somebody that's a little bit more outgoing, they'll lean in a little bit more, they'll listen and they'll be nodding and they'll be going, yeah, okay, I get that. I see where you're coming from where the analyst type of mind is more direct sometimes. And they're just like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, okay, we've got a problem, let's fix it, okay. And depending on what the customer is like, you have to change the way you service that customer. If the customer is an analytic mind, then you need an analytic mind as well to show them that you're, you're very much like them. So there's a lot involved in it for sure, but I think we can all get better. I think some people are suited for it better than others. Just inherently, yeah. 
I had an interesting uh, experience this morning. I, I had to go to a, see a doctor. He usually runs quite on time, but he was running about 45 minutes late today, which was getting a little stressful for me because I had an 11 o'clock. So I waited in the waiting room for about 45 minutes. Nobody said anything to me. And then after about 45 minutes, the assistant came and took me into the room. And as she was doing that, she said, you know, oh, we're really sorry. Our first patient took about an hour. And so we got behind and that's why we're running behind. And, you know, instantly I wasn't angry before, but instantly I just felt relaxed because I just so appreciated having that explanation. But the interesting thing when I started thinking about it afterwards is why didn't the receptionist who was in the waiting room just make a general announcement and say, you know, we're really sorry. This is why we're running late. It would have made a huge difference. And, you know, in that example, I don't think it necessarily comes down to personality. I think that that's just something that could be part of the training process. You know, when this happens, this is how we respond. When this happens, we proactively communicate with customers in this way. Yes. Yeah, absolutely bang on with that, right? It's such a simple solution. And then everybody that's sitting there waiting would have gone, oh, okay, now I understand. And if they had a tight appointment, they could come up and say, hey, I'm going to have to rebook or something like that instead of leaving you stressed, wondering if you're going to make it to the appointment or have to leave. Right. So you talked a little bit about sort of introvert and extrovert and sort of these, you know, inherent personality components of how they impact service delivery and might have an impact on how staff interact with customers. In your book, you also talk a bit about generations and how they sort of view their relationship with work. Do you see this also having an impact on how they view their role as a service provider? So, you know, just looking at sort of Gen X versus Gen Y or millennials or whatever. Do they have different sort of views on what service is and what their role is in sort of representing the brand? You know what? I think um, the younger generations are misunderstood. And the thing is, because people think, oh, they're young, what could they possibly know or offer that we have so many years of experience? So we obviously know a lot more than them. And I think that's where a lot of businesses make a mistake because they do have a lot to offer. They may be better at brainstorming solutions because they're more fresh into the into the role and everything. The other thing is they want to be trusted, and we don't always do that, right? We don't give them opportunities because they're younger. And I think that's why we also see the younger generation jump ship a lot quicker and a lot more often because they're not having their needs filled as employees as well. So... I think all generations can do a really good job. I think it's done a little bit differently. I'm Generation X, so some people say, oh, you're old school in the way you you think things through and everything. But everybody needs training, no matter where they're at, for sure. But I think the younger generations, you've got to give them a little bit more freedom, a little bit more responsibility, and the training as well. And I think they'll thrive in that situation. Right. Because the one thing that you're kind of touching on there is sort of engagement, right? So, you know, if organizations have an idea of how they want their brand to be perceived, I think every organization wants to be, you know, as you, as you coined it, the leader of the pack, known for, you know, sort of the best of the best in, in whatever they deliver. But in order to really fulfill that, you really have to make sure that everybody is engaged in the mission. And obviously, everybody in the organization has a different role, a different responsibility. What are some things that organizations can do to really engage everybody? You know, like I said, from the CEO to the person who answers the phones to the person who's, you know, driving the truck, delivering the tables, what have you, in that mission? 
I think with employee engagement, I think that is the key thing in customer service first off. I think if we take care of our employees, they'll take care of our customers. Our customers will take care of us. Simple, simple formula, but so many people fail to take care of their employees properly. So can you pay a little bit better to start with than industry average? I think that's important because it shows, hey, we really want you on our team. We're paying a little bit more than our competition pays. I think you need to reward your employees when things are going well and they've done something well. If they've stepped up above and beyond what is expected, then reward them. And when I say reward them, it's reward them with something they would appreciate. You know, you're not going to give the introvert, uh, put them in front of 100 employees and say, look at our employee of the month today and, and embarrass them, right? So if the person's really into video games or something like that or movies, then get them a gift certificate for that. The other thing I would say is have lots of company events. And uh, you know what? I travel a fair bit and speak a fair bit on customer service. And some of the answers I get about what do you do for your company, for your employees, and some of the smaller companies actually go on camping trips together and all of the families come. And they actually expect it every year now. The employees are like, when's our next camping trip? Because they love that connection so much. One of the things we used to do in the trade show industry was every third Friday, we'd have a barbecue there and we'd just do burgers and hot dogs and everybody would sit around. Sometimes after work, we would uh, bring in some wine and beer and we just have a little end of the week celebration for how well we did and, and go over things. So I think keeping them connected that way is huge. And it doesn't have to cost you an absolute fortune like some of these big companies that put in playrooms and sleeping pods for their employees and that. You can do some simple things, you know, bringing in donuts or... Even startups can do that. <laughs> I had uh, Brett Colvin on uh, episode three, and he was talking about what they do at Good Lawyer. It doesn't sound very much different than what you're talking about. It They call it strategic beers. There you go. <laughs> Love it. It sounds very technical, but I think it's just beers. <laughs> when you're looking at building a team, so let's say I have an organization and I'm building a, a service area. This may or may not be a real scenario in my life right now. So I'm looking for a team of people who are going to sort of be the front face of the organization. So they're going to answer calls, do tech support, support sales. They're going to be the sort of the front lines for the company. What kind of attributes, values, characteristics should I be looking for through the recruitment process? Well, I think the first thing I would do is be checking out them on social media to see how well connected they are, uh, what type of person they are. For customer service, I do think being a little bit more outgoing, liking being in a crowd uh, or around people, I think that's very important. Somebody that speaks quite well, very articulate, somebody that's a people person that when I say where's their emotion on their sleeve, I mean not gets frustrated and, and blows up if, if something goes wrong, but can really empathize, yeah, with what's going on. So I think those are the three main things that I would focus on. I guess you, you need to look at their background as well, where they've been working, the positions they've been in before. One other big thing is, are they trainable? And, you know, sometimes you'll, you'll see when people send their resume in that they've done this course, this course, this course, been over here, went training there and everything. That usually impresses me because they're all about self-development. And then other people are like, no, you see, see what I am. This is what you get. So I like seeing that people, even if they don't have post-secondary education, if they've done lots of extra courses and things like that, I, I believe that's important as well. We had a long conversation in our home last night with our daughter. 
were really trying to encourage her to stay with her sports and really sort of trying to help her to understand why team sports are so important and that it's not just about, you know, staying fit, that it's also about friendships and how a lot of employers really value those experiences as well and might actively seek out new hires who participated in team sports, especially over a long period of time. And she was really surprised by that. She's like, why would an employer care that I played water polo? And so we started talking about, you know, well, what does an an athlete have to do? They have to manage their time. They have to work with others. They have to work towards a goal. They have to be coachable. These are all really important things for employers. And she was really surprised by that. She didn't really see how that would have value in the workplace. Wow. So is she staying with the sports then? Yes, I think so. It wasn't a conversation about, is she going to quit? It was more about helping her to see that there's value beyond just, you know, staying fit, for example. You have a chapter in your book called Shift Happens, dedicated to change. So I'm always really interested in this topic because I really feel like no organization is going to be successful in the long term if it can't change. You know, in, in your book, obviously, you give some great examples like Sears, like Blockbuster, organizations that didn't rise to the occasion and change and go with the way of the world and instead decided to sort of keep doing things the way that they always had. Obviously, change is hard. It's hard for everybody. But what can organizations do to sort of support everybody, you know, including the people who are maybe more change averse in sort of changing along with the times so that the organization can stay current? I think the biggest thing when we're dealing with change is communication. The stats are changing on this, and I can't remember them off of my hand. Younger, the younger generations are way more open to change than people my sort of age, you know, in, in the 50s, because they've grown up from basically when they were born, and things are changing so fast in technology all the time, and they embrace it. They line up every time there's a new phone out, got to have it, got to have it, right? New game comes out, I've got to have it. And they adapt really well to change. But I, I think in a business setting, the most important thing is you have to have clear communication. And if you see a change coming if you're if you're going to change your processes your whole computer system give them as much notice as you can say you know what in six months we're going to have a new program starting we're just letting you know ahead of time and we're going to be implementing a beta group for that there's going to be four or five of you that are going to be working through it first so we're going to work out the kinks you're telling it, you're communicating about them then you want to involve them get their feedback and just keep them up to date with all the progress that's made along there, because then that helps alleviate fears. You're, you're drawing them in, you're asking for their input, uh, and it makes them feel like more like part of the team. And not springing it on them, like, you know, starting tomorrow, this is our new policy. <laughs> yeah, I do an exercise on change when I'm, when I'm speaking in groups and that, and I'll have uh, everybody stand up, grab a partner, face, or go back to back. And then I say, okay, I want you to change 12 things about your appearance. And I can say, it can, it can, you can take a pen out of your pocket. You can take your glasses off. You can put your hair up. You take your jacket off. Don't take all of your clothes off. It's a family show. But what I'll say is it's changed 12 things. And people are looking at me like 12 things, 12 things. I say, okay, okay, let's make it easier. Let's change two things about it. And everybody's like, oh, okay. So if we take small steps and try things out and see how they go, Two things are very manageable for most people to do, one or two things. So if we did one or two changes every month, people would be way more receptive to that than instead of saying, here, boom, here's 12 things we are changing right now. You're on board or you're out of here. And what happens if we change too much, people get too frazzled and they will leave because they're like, no, I don't want to do this. Whereas if we nurture them along and make the changes small, 
Change small, change often. That's what I say. And that seems to be the best way to handle change. It's something I struggle with, to be quite honest, as a manager, because I am the opposite of change averse. I love change. I embrace it really easily. It's really comfortable for me. I think it's probably the way that I grew up. I grew up as an expat kid. And so change is just really normal for me. And so, you know, oh, we need a new POS. Okay, I'll find a new POS. I'll implement it. And, you know, and I forget that sometimes that's really hard for my team. And they've been using the same POS and they're comfortable with a new POS. And so one of the things that I've learned about myself over the years is that, you know, not everybody changes as quickly and is as comfortable with it. So, you know, I think your point about giving people lots of heads up and communicating it is really important. I know for me as well, I don't like change. I have to teach people how to change and everything. But, you know, simple things like when I know I have to get a new iPhone and it's like, oh, no, there's going to be tons of new things I need to learn. And I get all panicked about it. I'm the first one in line at the iPhone store. Yeah. You don't still have a BlackBerry, do you? No. <laughs> but you know what? They're huge in, in like, um, I've got family in, in Great Britain. They're huge over there. BlackBerry is huge. I, I don't get it. <laughs> Okay, let's talk about unhappy customers. So you've got a whole, you know, again, lots of references in your book, but a whole chapter where you talk about different types of unhappy customers. So you talk about Silent Sam, Whiny Wilma, and Grumpy Gus. Can you just take us through that really quickly? Your Silent Sams, I believe it is, what is it, 96% of unhappy customers are going to be Silent Sams. They're the people where you know something's wrong. You can look at them, or maybe you've done something that you know is going to upset them but they don't say anything. And you, and you might even say to them, is everything okay? And they're going to go, yep, everything is fine. Well, fine is one of those four-letter words we don't want to hear because if everything is fine, it usually means it's not fine. And what happens with the Silent Sams is they most of the time will walk out of your business and never come back. And they won't tell you what the problem was. They just like, I'm done. I'm out of here. So those are the ones we really need to dig deeper. If you know something's wrong, you really need to strategically say to them, like, you can either say, if you've messed up, you could say, I messed up today. I'm really sorry. This isn't the way things usually go. I'd like you to stay on as a customer. How are we going to make that happen? Because I can see that you're obviously a little bit concerned or a little bit upset about this. And then if you can open up the dialogue like that, then at least they're going, okay, they're making an effort here. And then they'll open up to you. Most of the time, they'll open up to you. Some people will still walk out that door. The whiny Wilmas, it depends on the industry. I speak to a lot of municipalities, and these stats are different for municipalities because everybody going to a municipality is usually paying a fine or pulling a permit. So it's never a happy experience for them. You just have to make it as pain-free as possible. So the percentages I'm showing here today are for mainly, you know, everyday retail businesses. The whiny Wilmas are about three and a half percent. And what they are, and you can say whiny Wilmas, whiny Wills, they're the people that are going to complain no matter what your service level is. They just want some sort of discount because they've been traumatized because they have to wait five minutes longer than usual or the meal wasn't quite hot enough, even though they ate the whole meal and things like that. So again, with them, you, you have to weigh out how important is their business. And what can you do to make it right? Because, you know, word of mouth can be the best thing for businesses and it can be the worst thing for businesses, especially now with social media. Before, in the old days, you know, they'd tell 10 of their friends and people would be like, oh, you know, and 80% of them would say, I'm not going to do, I'm not going to give that business any more business. Now they go on Google and tell 100,000 people. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly right. So it's very, very different now for sure. 
And then you've got the grumpy Gus's. And grumpy Gus is actually fairly nice, saying it nice for this type of person because they are just the outright rude, nasty people that you probably need to call security for. And, you know, we were just down in Jamaica and we're flying back with WestJet. And they had all these new regulations with arrive can and everything. And my wife said to me two days before we're getting on the plane, let's do this now just in case it takes longer. She's very organized. And it took us like 45 minutes to fill out this form and everything. Well, this family, it was, um, I don't know, a guy in his probably 35. He had his wife and two little kids there. And then he had his brother and sister and their family there. Well, we're about four wickets down and we're having a great time talking to our lady. She was very friendly. And also we hear this guy screaming his head off. Like he's just, he's almost over the counter and everybody's staring at him. And I, and I should have walked over there and said something, but I didn't because there was like 250 people in line and everything. It's like, okay, whatever. But he was mad. We don't even know really why he was mad. I think it was that they hadn't filled out the arrive can ahead of time. And now it was a huge issue. And he was worried about missing his flight. Well, he was so belligerent. They let the rest of the family on the flight and they wouldn't let him on the flight because he just wasn't calming down. So those are the type of people you, you definitely need to call security because they're, they're just going to rant and rave. And you don't want them as a customer, even if they're going to say bad things about you. Anybody who knows their true character isn't going to pay too much notice to it. And more importantly, I think the whole idea of, you know, the customer is always right. What that means is that your loyal CSR is not and that they are somehow obliged to sort of take that flack and, you know, and absorb it as if they're not humans that have, you know, real feelings and don't want to be insulted or yelled at. You obviously said, you know, that you feel like the airline did the right thing and not letting that customer on. But sort of in the long term, even when there's not sort of the extreme situation where security gets called or the person's removed from the flight or whatever, we do have lots of situations where, you know, whether it's a, you know, person working for a bank answering telephone banking questions or a person working at a registry or a wicket at the airport are really having to absorb a lot of customer frustration. And it seems like COVID has really escalated a lot of that. So what should managers be doing to really support these frontline workers? That's a, a great question, Shannon. It's a tough question too, because COVID is still fairly fresh and we've got a lot of people out there. We don't know what's going on in their day-to-day -day lives. A lot of people are struggling still, not working, reduced work, bills have piled up. They haven't been able to make their payments or, you know, or even simple things like maybe they've had a fight with their, with their spouse before they came in there. I think we need to constantly have our employees' backs, especially in front of customers. And if we see something that's done wrong, then we can pull our employee aside after and have a chat with them. But I, I think reinforcing the fact that they are an important part of the team, that they've got a tough job, letting them know that, you know, it's going to be tougher than normal with COVID going on. And these are the reasons why. So reminding them not to take it personally. Most of the time, the person on the other side of the counter is not mad at that person. They're mad at the process or what's happening around it, but not the individual that is serving them. So. You know, just keeping in constant contact and it's harder during COVID, but you want to check in with your employees more often than not now just to make sure they are okay mentally and physically as well. Yeah. And, and also do it, you know, wearing a mask and six feet apart. <laughs> it is challenging. I, I find it hard to sort of support my staff these days with the physical restrictions that are in place, you know, because I can't get close enough that they, you know, and I can't take my mask off and they can't really see my face. And 
you know, it's hard to communicate empathy and to really connect with the people who are really the face of my business in a meaningful way at a distance. But the eyes are the gateway to the soul, are they not? So yeah, it's so much harder. Mine are always clouded up though with the glasses and the mask. (laughs) Well, and it's harder to read your customers as well, right? Because you cannot see their full face either. So yeah, it's certainly a challenging time to be delivering great service. Well, Russ, it's been fantastic talking with you. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Have a look at our website. If you go to waitwell.ca and click on podcast, you'll be able to see all the show notes with links to Russ's profiles and you can find out where to get his book at your service. Thanks for joining us, Russ. All right, Shannon. Thanks so much for having me today. Thank you. Thanks for listening to 1 Billion Raving Fans. If you enjoyed listening, please follow or subscribe and tell a friend. Visit www.waitwell.ca to download a tip sheet you can use to create 1 billion raving fans for your business. Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company. You looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness? Then check out the Natural Man podcast. Join me, host Mike C, as we explore all areas of human wellness, physical, mental, and emotional. Learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health. Remember, your doctor works for you. Learn biohacks, neurohacks, ways to improve sleep, and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.